And now we're turning to uh, Genesis 15. Lord, you know this passage better than any of us do. Your spirit understands it. And I just pray now that all that I have to share would be taken by your spirit. It would be anointed and that you would just help us to hear what you want us to hear this morning, to be encouraged, to be blessed, to be a people of faith. And we ask this for uh, Christ, our Savior's name and his glory. Amen. I think it's difficult for us to comprehend what our faith, that act of belief in God, that understanding of who God is and what He wants to accomplish in our hearts and lives, I think it's hard for us to really comprehend what it means to God. I think the story of Job has always been helpful to me in that regard. The story of Job, if you remember, it starts off where there's a day when the angels are gathering and Satan is among them. And God speaks to Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And God's basically putting a challenge out to Satan. He's basically saying, Here's a man that you won't be able to corrupt. Here's a man that will continue to praise me no matter what because of his faith. And Satan says, well, of course he has faith. You bless him. You've blessed him, and he has wealth, and he has possessions, and he has all these things. And if you remember the story of Job, Satan is allowed to take all that away from him. And through the story, you read of a man whose faith shines through. There's a lot of complications. There's the suffering. There's the questioning, all that. But at the end of the day, here's a man that demonstrates his faith. And understand that for God, it's his heart and it's his pleasure and his confidence in Job that is really put forward here. He's saying, here's a man of faith. And it's about the, not about the blessing of God in his life, but it's about Job simply trusting him. You know, faith is held up as this great trophy in heaven. And that's what Genesis 15 is about. Genesis 15 is about another man of faith, the man Abram. And as we turn to Genesis 15, we're going to uh, consider what it has to teach us and where our encouragement comes out of uh, this chapter today. Sometimes I think it's, it's easy to lose track of the timeline with Abraham. In Genesis 12, we are introduced to this man. He is 75 years old, and God speaks to him and calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He calls him and says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to make you a nation of great blessing, and through you all the other nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so he begins this trek. And as he's on the trek through 12 and through at the end of 16, we next learn of his age, which is at 86. So there's 11 years pass in that time frame when we read the story of Ishmael being born. So there's 11 years. In chapter 15, we're probably close to about 10 years have passed since that promise is given. A lot's happened in Abram's life. We've been studying that together. And as we think about it, there is this passage of time that we kind of, it, it's hard for us to appreciate, but 10 years goes by. Jake, uh, Abraham's whole life story takes 25 years. It's 100 years when Isaac is born. You know, 25 years of waiting, of wandering, of wondering about what God is going to be doing. I mean, we're having trouble. It's been 14 or 15 months of COVID, and we're going stir-crazy, right? Understanding where God is. 10 years that God had spoken to him, and he's waiting on this. That's where we come to in Genesis 15. And as he is in 15, he has just gone through this incredible battle 
that he has gone and rescued Lot from the other kings, and we studied all that last week. And at the end of chapter 14, you see Abraham raising a tithe, giving it to Melchizedek. And then he also refuses to take any of the spoils from the king of Sodom. For he says, it's not going to be men who are going to make me rich. I don't want anyone to say, you're the ones who have taken care of me. And it's inferred there that he's basically saying, God takes care of me. God is the one that I'm going to rely on. And right after that, we begin to read in chapter 15 that the word of the Lord comes to him in a vision. And so we're going to read this entire chapter. Dwayne's going to be excited about that. I've kidded him about how much scripture reads, but I just thought there's no way around it. I have to read this whole chapter to us this morning, so 20 verses. And uh, as we do that, I want to prepare you a bit for it, because then we're going to come back and just look at it in broad chunks. So as we read this, it's broken nicely into really two parallel kind of accounts, and we'll look at it that way. And then in the middle is this verse, verse 6. So verses 1 to 5 and 7 to 20. In each section, you're going to see these parallels, that the Lord reveals himself to Abram, and then he gives a promise, and then Abram enters a dialogue. He raises a question, and God answers the question by giving him an assurance. He gives him an affirmation of the promise. But right in the middle is that verse 6, and we'll end up looking back at that verse this morning. And it's important to note how all this chapter gets started. And as we read that, just listen, and then I'm going to just read through the entire chapter. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and ministered and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves." And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. That is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it, and now let's God's Spirit apply it to our hearts. When we first begin this passage, it starts with the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. This is unique. It's the first time it's happened this way. Back in chapter 12, the Lord said, or God said to Abram. We're not told how that communication took place. But in this chapter, it's very intentional. The word of the Lord came in a vision. It's a direct communication. It's a sense that there is a, a moment of intensification taking place here. To have this taking place in a vision, it's not so much that it's a visual impact for Abram. The idea is that there is a message being imparted to him, a message of great import. It's giving substance to what is being made known. And so as the Lord comes to him, he starts with this word that he wants him to understand. It gets repeated later on where he says, I am the Lord and I will give you this word. It's by my word that this is being revealed to you. And note as well, the first thing the Lord has to do when he comes to Abram is give him some kind of reassurance. Don't be afraid. When God appears, when God shows up, when God begins to speak, the, the heart reaction of people is to fear. I mean, the presence of God in his holiness, the presence of God in his wonder and his power strikes at the very heart of anyone's unworthiness. How many times do we see this through the pages of Scripture where God is coming to someone and wants them to understand who he is in a fresh way and there is a bowing down, there is a falling to knees, there is a fear. And so it is here. Abraham is coming before God in a sense, in a very fresh way. God is imparting something new to him, but he's saying, don't be afraid, Abram. Do not fear. Here's why. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. And he does this twice. And this is where it breaks nicely into these two sections. And I'll just kind of cover them both and highlight a few ideas here. Because he comes and he reveals himself. He reveals himself in this first section as, I am your shield and your very great reward. Down in verse 7, he's going to say, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession. Abram, I'm your shield. A shield, I am your protector. There's more than just kind of the idea of protection behind it, though. It's I am your shield, I'm your benefactor, I am your provider. I am the one who will take you under my care and, and give you provision. And out of that will come this reward that I have for you. He also says later in verse 7, and I am the Lord. In our English versions, whenever you see the Lord written as small capital letters, it's that great word behind God for Yahweh or Jehovah. It's his revelation of his self as the God who comes in an intimacy, a God who comes in relationship, a God who comes to his people to be made known by them and so that they may know him as well. I am the Lord, Abram. I am the one that you can intimately understand and appreciate who you am. I'm the one who brought you out of Ur. Remember all that has come to this place and led you to here. 
Remember who I am, Abram. And I have called you out from your family and all those family ties. That would have included all those cultural relationships that he had and cultural ancestral gods that were perhaps part of all that he had. And he said, I am now for you alone. I am the God who has brought you to this place. I am the one true sovereign Lord. And all of this revelation is a reminder of who he is and has proven himself to be for Abram. And then he says, and I have promises again for you. And he's really reiterating and expanding a little bit on what he's already given to Abram. And he says there's really two things. And the first promise, I am your great reward. I'm your shield and I'm your reward. And we might get stumped by what God means by reward, except Abraham fills the blanks in by his uh, reaction. Because you see his reaction. He says, what can you give me since I remain childless? God, that's the greatest reward. That's really all that I am expecting and anticipating, a son, a family heritage. As he's saying that, Abram's basically saying, God, this is about my future. What can you promise me that will, in that sense, give me a, a sense of hope for all that is to come, a sense of heritage? And that's what is being promised to Abraham here. It's a future that's promised well beyond Abraham's life. It's this idea that he's going to have, give birth to this great nation that is to be coming. And so as he gives that promise, God's just reiterating, Abram, that is what we're still talking about. You are going to receive that promise. And then down in verse 7, he says, And also out of that promise, I'm giving you a land. I have promised that I am going to take you into a land, and you're going to take possession of it. What's, what's the relevance of land? Well, if you're a nomad, if you have no land, it's very significant. Land is about belonging. Land is about a place of, for the present, you know, having a stability, having that sense of, of presence to be there and belonging in this land. But it's also about the future belonging as well. And God's great blessing to Abraham and also for future generations, for all who will be in Abraham, it's an important concept to understand that in Abraham, or I keep, I'm going to keep saying Abraham today, I have trouble, Abram at this point, it's not Abraham till later on, but when he becomes the father of many nations. But anyway, he's, he's Abram, and in this promise, it's all still future to him, but he's having this land, and it's the promise of present provision, of belonging, having a kingdom. And this is our promise for all who are going to be in Abram, which we'll end up looking at at the end of this passage. You know, it's a promise for the future. It's a promise for his present. And God's reminding Abram of these promises. And as he puts all this before him, naturally, Abram has questions. Because God's saying, you'll have a child. God's saying, you'll have a land. And Abram's natural response is, what? How's this going to be? I have no child. In fact, right now, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant that he has picked up in his travels somewhere along the journey, has become the servant, the head of his household. He's now in place to receive all the inheritance. So according to the customs of the day, but Abraham doesn't have a direct heir. How can this be? And a land, how can this be? 
I just went through a battle with these other kings of all these cities that already dwell in this land to possess it. If you look back in chapter 14, there was a total of about, about eight or nine different kings and cities and dominions that were existing in this land that Abram has been brought into. He's saying, how can this be? A land to possess? Lord, that's all more than my mind can comprehend at this point. And so, the second part of each of these passages is, in answer to Abram's questions, the Lord says, let me give you some assurances. Let me put your mind to rest. And in the first case, the word of the Lord comes to him, his personal promise. In verse 4, you read, the word of the Lord comes to him, and it says to him, this man isn't going to be your heir. It's not going to be Eliezer of Damascus. In fact, Abraham, come with me outside. Come outside and look up at the sky and all the stars. He's already kind of done this once with him, hasn't he? Remember he said, Abraham, look at all the dust on the ground. Now he's saying, look at all the stars in the sky. He says, start counting them. And if you can count them, that's your descendants. That's the heritage that you're going to receive. That's what your offspring is going to be, as numerous as the stars in the sky, uncountable for you, overwhelming. God said it'll be the dust, the sand. It'll be like the stars in the sky. Abraham, and the, the key point is, the word of the Lord comes to him. He's saying, Abraham, this is my promise. You know, the phrase, my word is my bond, just the honor of an individual that's tied up and giving their word. This is the Lord speaking to Abram and saying, Abram, this is my word to you. It's my promise to you. Let me reiterate it. There is going to come from you this seed which is going to multiply and grow in this nation that you won't be able to comprehend, that is going to be more than you can even understand is going to come from you. I think in that picture, it's got to be more than just this physical sense of a people. There's this sense, there's a spiritual heritage that God's talking about through Abram. Remember all nations on earth are going to be blessed through him? He's saying, Abram, you can't comprehend the blessing. You can't comprehend the nation and the kingdom that's going to come from you. And second, Abram's question is, how can I know that I'll take possession of the land? And God says, okay, Abram, I'm going to assure you through a binding covenant. Covenant's an incredibly important word in this passage, as it is all through the Old Testament. It's a word that we don't, old and new, we'll talk about that later as well. But the word covenant, we don't use it very often. It's not a word that kind of comes into our vocabulary every day. Covenants and contracts are very similar things. Often at weddings, I like to highlight this for individuals, because weddings is the one time we talk about covenant making. And covenants are different than contracts. Contracts are all about protecting each other. If I make a contract with you, it's all about me protecting myself, right? I make the contract and write it up in a su such a way that when you mess up, I will be protected. So it's written that way. It's adversarial. Whereas covenants are really the opposite. Covenants are the making of personal promises with each other. 
Covenants are all about us entering into a relationship, entering into partnership, entering into a promise relationship kind of experience. And so God says to Abram, okay, Abram, take a heifer, take the goat, take the animals, and cut them up and put them out before us here. It's a little obscure what's actually happening here because we don't have examples of this. In Jeremiah 34, there's another case that's kind of similar to this. If you read commentaries, there's a whole lot of thinking of what's happening. But basically what's going on is they're going to make a legally binding covenant with each other. And to do that, there is ceremony involved. Again, it's a great picture of weddings. Why do we wrap weddings all up with ceremony? Because as human beings, ceremony help us remember things. They help make things memorable and visual and tangible for us. So in this moment, God is saying to Abram, let's make this tangible. Let's make this in a way that you're going to paint a picture that you will forever understand and your generations will understand because you'll be able to tell them about this moment. And so he says to Abram, take the animals, very specific animals, the heifer, the goat, the ram, the doves, the pigeons. And he cuts the animals in half. He doesn't take the birds and cut them in half. He kind of kills them probably a sacrificial way and lays them aside. And then he lays them and puts them aside. There's a lot of different thinking about what's happening here. Some people say that the picture of covenant making is that the people who are making the covenant are, are basically saying, so shall I be if I break this covenant. As these animals are split and torn in half, that's what's going to happen to me. That's a very negative type of thing. It's almost like putting a curse or something on each other. The other side of looking at that is, it's the same idea, but it's really the sacrifice of life. It's saying, this is what my life is like. I am giving up my life, so to speak, by entering into this covenant with you. My life is given up, and I'm uniquely binding myself to you now within this covenant that we're going to be making. Others can think that it's um, that sense of sacrifice that is being offered here. However you work it out, and you can go and read a number of commentaries on it, I think what we understand is that this is a serious and a life-defining promise. It's a continuing commitment that's being entered into. Some interesting things happen in the midst of this covenant making. Again, many are hard to explain. They have different shades of meaning. The first thing that happens is Abraham prepares everything, and then the birds of prey begin to appear. You know, the vultures start coming down. They see fresh meat on the ground, and they come and they attack it, and Abraham has to drive these birds away to keep it all intact, waiting on God to kind of fulfill, to come and, and give next steps. Abraham is being brought in to this covenant in a sense which later on he's not going to be a part of. Some see some great symbolism here. They see the, the Gentiles coming against the nation of Israel and Abraham driving them off. There's a whole lot of different thinking about it. Again, it's not absolutely clear except Abraham's taking part in it. He's making all the preparations. Then as the day wears on and the sun sets, we read that Abraham falls into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness overcomes him. So he's saying he's being removed from what's going to take place next. 
but also at that same time, that sense of the thick and dreadful darkness coming, we see this at another covenant-making experience, Mount Sinai. When the Israelites come out of Egypt and they end up at Mount Sinai, and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over the mountain. And they are told, do not even go and touch the edge of the mountain or you will die because this is God's presence coming. So Abraham is brought into this presence of God. Again, in this great sense of vision, God is, at, is moving here. And then God makes some revelation for him. Some very hard things are revealed to Abraham at this point. His descendants are going to be in bondage as slaves for 400 years. It's going to be hard times for them. And though ultimately it's going to be for their good, they're going to be brought out with great possessions. They're going to have to experience this hardship. It's also a reminder that it's not really the Israelites that God is waiting on. He's not waiting in those 400 years for something for them. He's saying the time of the Amorites isn't yet fulfilled. Their sin hasn't been built up yet that they are going to experience judgment for you to enter back into the land. God just outlines a bit of his sovereignty over all history. There's no explanations. God's just saying, Abram, understand this is how it's going to be. But the message is pretty clear. It's all future. It's all coming. There is a covenant that I'm making with you, but it's all there ahead. And so far into the future that you will not live to see it all. It's a reminder that even in covenant with God, it doesn't mean that we're removed from the pilgrimage of life itself. 25 years it's taking Abraham to see the promise of a son fulfilled. 400 years for the promise of Israelites being brought back into the land. God has a timing. God has a history. God has a, a sense of all that needs to be accomplished that we probably will never fully comprehend and understand until he shares it with us from glory. But he shares it with Abraham, reminding him of his presence, of his promises, and giving him this assurance. And finally we read down in verse 17, that when the sun had set and darkness had fallen and a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appears and passes between the pieces. An image of the presence of God. God himself comes as Abraham lays asleep and passes between these pieces of covenant making. Can be a lot in those symbols of the blazing torch. It's, it's fire, fire in God, his holiness, his purity, his judgment, all of that wrapped up there. But the, the, the central point is God comes and passes between the pieces. And verse 18 says, And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He is the one. He himself is the one who says, I am responsible for this covenant. See, usually in covenants, there's two partners. There's two people. In marriage, you have two sides, both making covenant, both saying, this is everything I will give into this relationship. And in a sense, it's giving 100% of myself, and the other side saying, I am giving 100% of myself. It's not contractual saying until this and this takes place, it's open-ended. But here God says, I am accepting the full responsibility for this covenant. This is all on me. 
I will give you a land, Abraham. I will give you a sense of belonging. I will be the one who gives the kingdom. I will be responsible for the blessing. And he reminds him of all these things. And these things are all going to be so in an assurance, but Abram, they're all still future. And that comes back to verse 6. This incredible statement that, in a sense, is more like an editorial comment than just a part of this passage. This, this comment doesn't seem to just be birthed out of just what's happening here, but it's a comment on this is who Abraham is. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. I mean, we've already witnessed Abraham's obedience to the Lord. In Genesis 12, he was told to leave his country, and he, in obedience, came out of it. So this statement is really more than just at this moment he believed God. Abraham's life has been a life of believing God. And this statement, it's credited to him as righteousness, is given as one of the foundations of grace and faith for us throughout the biblical record. This verse is quoted four times in the New Testament. Three by Paul, twice in Romans, once in Galatians. And the other interesting comment is in James. When you talk about works and law, those two seem to be at heads at times, but they both come to this verse and say, this is our relationship with God. It's based on faith being credited to us as righteousness. It answers how Abram was brought into the confidence and the presence of God. See, we don't know where Abraham learned of Jehovah. We don't know how that relationship started. We're introduced to him when he is called out of Ur by the Lord. How did he get there? Why was he called out? Was it because of the stellarness of his character? We see those shortcomings popping up all through the story of Abraham. Was it because of his obedience to God? Again, we see obedience is not perfect in the life of Abraham. Was it due to his family lineage? He was told to leave all of that behind. Now, what is it about Abram that God saw? Abram believed God. Abram put his faith, his trust in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the foundation of gospel. It's the foundation of our relationship. By grace, we are saved through faith. And the conduct and the foundation of his life was simply this, not his obedience, it was his trust in God. It's how the writer to the Hebrews describes Abram. If you go to Hebrews 11, in a long passage there, you read this, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go a place he would later receive his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he went. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he moved out when God called and said, God, there is better things for me. In fact, I love what the writer of Hebrews says. Verse 13, he comments about all those he's already talked about. All these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So while Abraham is not responsible for keeping the covenant, he is brought into the covenant through faith. And God accepts his faith as this precious gift, and he credits him with righteousness in return. God brings him in. He welcomes him into his country. And as Abram is brought in, so are all brought in through faith. It's Paul's point in Romans. In Romans 4, we read this, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And the words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Like Abraham, we have been promised a son. We have been promised a kingdom. And the son is Jesus Christ. And the kingdom is the kingdom of the eternal God, our Father, Spirit, and Son. And we are invited in. In faith we believe. And it is credited to us as righteousness. Our faith is this precious gift to God. Jason, you and the team can come back up. Remember where I started in that whole story of Job? that it's hard to comprehend the preciousness of our gift, the preciousness of our gift before God. I wonder whom it is whom God boasts in heaven these days. Does he have anyone that he says, have you considered my servant? He is, she is, upright and blameless, fearing God, shunning evil. That's the faith that I've credited to them for righteousness. See, this is our precious gift that we see coming through Abraham. That God has established a covenant. A covenant that he was faithful to through Abraham. Through the nation of Israel. Through Mount Sinai and coming all the way into the New Testament. Ultimately, the covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to come to the Lord's table this morning to celebrate this covenant, the covenant of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, the promise that he made by giving himself, that picture of his sacrifice being made for us, that we through faith might be saved. The table is for those who by faith have entered into God's eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his sinless life, faith in his sacrificial death, faith in the power of his resurrection, faith that is our righteousness, not because of what we have done, but all because of what he has done. And we come in confession, giving thanks to him for his grace to call us his children.
That's why baptism is so closely connected to baptism. We are looking forward to having a baptismal service someday in the near future, we hope. We'll be working those details out. If you have ever thought of being baptized, if you've been saved, brought into the family of God, talk to us. We would love to be able to have you share in a testimony where you are uh, identified with Jesus Christ. But for today, we are invited to take a cup, to take some bread in your home where you're gathered today. And as we sing this next song, to take that bread and eat it in remembrance of the body that was given for you. To take that cup and to drink it, giving thanks for a blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. To spend some time in reflection and meditation. To give thanks for what God has done to confess your sins afresh. And to be brought into the presence of God. And to celebrate faith that is credited to you as righteousness. The band's going to sing and you're invited to take communion as we do that.